Go ahead and uh, open up, if you're going to be following along in your Bibles, to Luke chapter 18. The Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, towards the end of that Gospel, in chapter 18. That'll be our starting point this morning. We're actually going to move kind of from the back end of the book towards the front end of the book as we go through this lesson. Um, we're going to look in three different places in Luke. We're going to start in Luke 18, we'll go to Luke 14, and then we'll go to Luke chapter 5 at the end. I want to talk a little bit this morning um, just about the idea of being a disciple. Um, what I titled this lesson, which usually hopefully is a snapshot of kind of what I tried to get at, is being found a disciple. And I think um, it's important that though we believe in God, some would say, right, we have a belief in God, that we're actually found to be disciples. That's really what Jesus came on the earth. He had disciples, he had followers, people who tried to mimic him and learn from him. And um, one man put it, a, a theologian from the early early 20th century who ended up being a martyr um, because of some of the things that he taught and believed and acted on, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. And I think that's the sentiment that we're going to see expressed throughout these three passages in Luke, um, that to really, to claim to be a Christian and not really be a disciple of Jesus is to take Christ out of the equation. Um, and so let's begin in Luke chapter 18 with what I think is a good description of what it is that Jesus calls us to when he calls us to be disciples. Um, so you might say that this uh, is the call to discipleship here described in Luke chapter 18. Before we, we look at that though, um, I think most of us probably in this room at least have some idea of what a disciple is. We might say a follower or a learner. And then obviously to disciple to someone is to be a learner of that person, right? So if I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm learning from Jesus. Um, but one way that we might think about it as an example, and I think is probably an example that is the most accurate um, to what it is, is maybe a blacksmith. I think a lot of us are at least familiar with the concept of a blacksmith. And a blacksmith would take on an apprentice, and the apprentice not only would learn the trade, but he would learn it in such a way that he would even be able to and was expected to continue the business whenever the master died or quit or whatever. He actually had the right to not only continue the business, but continue it with the same mark or stamp that the master had in his work. And so that really there was no change from master to apprentice. He was the same markers in his business. And that's really the idea of what discipleship is, is that the one who's discipling someone really takes on the same qualities and teachings that the master has given them. So in Luke chapter 18, I want to expound on what exactly this means. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18, it reads, And a ruler, this is speaking to Jesus, asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. 
when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible for God. Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. We started this morning with a passage in Luke 7 that I appreciate uh, Chuck reading for us. Luke 7 was really the parable of the two debtors. Um, And really the point that Jesus was trying to get across in that parable was that naturally the one who feels like he owes more, who owes more, is going to be the one who's more thankful when they're forgiven of that debt, right? But then immediately we have the example of the, the woman, the sinful woman as they describe her, being the one who's weeping and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. And she's the example of the one who owes the more, right? And so her response to Jesus is a more dramatic response um, than, say, maybe the Pharisees. Um, I wanted to start with that passage, even though we're not going to go there in this text, to kind of set the premise for discipleship. Someone who's even going to take on the, the challenge of learning what the Master teaches is somebody who recognizes or sympathizes with the greater debtor. Does that make sense? <laughs> so I think, first of all, to even attempt this discipleship is we recognize that we're that lady, right? We recognize that of the two debts, I feel as though I have the bigger one. I feel as though I am forgiven more, right? And that's ultimately kind of the big call of Jesus's life, right, is that we're sinners, and Jesus has the solution for that. We need to realize we're that lady. So, I think that ruler kind of comes to Jesus with that premise, right? At some point in his life, he's kind of recognized that he needs to do things God's way, and that's kind of what he comes to ask. He asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He recognizes that his way is probably not the way to inherit eternal life, right? And he recognizes Jesus as some sort of authority on this matter. And so he asks him this question. You know, look at how Jesus answers this. He answers with the commandments, right? And so you've got to imagine this guy's like, okay, I know that part, right? Look at verse 21. All these things I've kept from my youth. So what is it this guy's really coming to Jesus to ask him about? He had the commandments. He actually performed or lived out the commandments. Why is this guy even coming to ask how does he inherit eternal life? I think it's because, and as Jesus answers, I think he points this out to him and to us, that he recognizes something's still missing. Um, Look at the way Jesus responds to that. All of these I've kept from my youth, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he didn't correct him and say, no, you haven't. He goes with it. He seems to believe and know that this guy in some capacity has actually done this 
and live this out. And so he continues, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Verse 22, I think, shows us that this guy was really coming to Jesus so that Jesus would show him the one thing he still lacked. Um, and I really think that is kind of in its essence the, what being called to be a disciple is. First of all, the premise is we have to understand we're, we're the second debtor, right? That's what Luke 7 is trying to teach us, right? Jesus tries to teach people in his day and I think stands true for us. But when we realize that, we come to God with this question, what do I do for eternal life? Ultimately, the commandments are very important. Jesus doesn't say disregard those. You've wasted your time. But there's always still something. Don't you feel that? There's always something that you're still kind of wondering about. Like, what is it? Is there something more? Is there something I'm lacking? And I think what we learn from this, guy is that we need to take that question to Jesus um, and let Jesus point out that one thing we're still lacking. Um, and look at how he answers. And I think this answer kind of shows two things here. Um, look at it again with me in verse 22. <clears throat> Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then the second part, come and follow me. I think verse 22 here is showing us that sometimes the one thing we still lack is unique to us. Right? We know from this account and another account and another gospel that this guy is described as being wealthy. He's young and he's wealthy. Um, and so I don't think all of us necessarily relate to this guy in all the ways. And I think that's what Jesus is saying in this first part. One thing that you still lack, and it says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure uh, in heaven. What was he lacking? Well, it seems like you might say maybe he's lacking treasure in heaven because he had been storing up treasures now. Right? That might have been unique to his situation, right? I might not struggle with that, but the thing is, this guy said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him the commandments. And he said, well, I've been doing all these things. And Jesus points out one thing you still lack. Verse 22 tells us sometimes Jesus asks us to do something he doesn't necessarily ask everyone else to do. You know? Like, we'll get to this a little bit later in Luke 5, but when Simon and some others come to Jesus, this isn't a requirement of them to follow him. And so I think this is an insight into what might be holding this young guy back. His riches were the thing that was holding him back, was really keeping him from treasures in heaven. Now we get to the second part. The universal part is always the come, follow me. Right? And so I think for us, we need to be willing to come to Jesus and ask the question, because it's a good question, Jesus, what am I still lacking? What do I need to have, do to inherit eternal life? We have to be willing to let Jesus point that thing out to us. And we have to accept that the thing that he points out to me is not necessarily the same thing he points out to you or you or you. He has the ability to look into our hearts and to be able to tell us, here's the thing that you're lacking that's hindering you from coming and following me. So that's kind of the call to discipleship. I feel that we have to recognize that Jesus has the answer and his call might be unique to us, but it always manifests itself ultimately in the come and follow me. 
Um, moving a little further in this, verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became, this is the, the young man, the rich young man here. He was, he was very sad for he was extremely rich. You know, this is kind of the part that gets a little more personal. Um, it's personal when Jesus points out the thing that he lacks that's hindering him from coming and following, and it's even more personal when we see the response. Um, and so to me, this is an insight into, you know, not everyone and not even all of us are going to respond appropriately to this call. When we really let Jesus point out this thing that we need to do, how do we answer? Are we like this guy and we end up getting sad about it and not too keen on that concept? Or, which we don't see in this story ultimately, um, is would we be like him would he, if he responded appropriately, if he had done this? Um, and then verse 27, moving down a little bit, we ultimately have people hearing this conversation on some level. And um, then it says, those who heard it said in verse 26, then who can be saved? Jesus had just said it's really hard for a rich guy to enter the kingdom of God. And he equates it to like this camel going through the eye of the needle. And they're like, well, psh, that's impossible then, right? I mean, the imagery to me seems really impossible, right? Like that's not something that's happening. Um, verse 27, but he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. You know, and that tells me this. What Jesus had identified in the young man was really, really hard, right? Really hard. And if you're that un- young man, it seems a little bit unfair. He doesn't ask everybody to do that, but he's asking me to do that, right? Not everyone has to sell their stuff and give it to, or take all their stuff, sell it and give it to the poor and then follow Jesus. A lot of people just get to follow Jesus, right? It seems unfair. But what I see in this is Jesus is really saying, whatever God asks of us, personally, whatever that is tailored to us and our thing that we're lacking, is God makes it possible to be accomplished. Seems impossible. I'm not going to be able to pass that camel through the eye of the needle myself, but God could do that thing. Um, And so whatever seems unfair or impossible to us when God's calling us to be disciples, we have to trust that he can make it possible and that he can allow us and help us to do that thing. Um, So the call to discipleship is general, come and follow Jesus. There's a sense in which we have to approach Jesus personally and let him sift through the things we still personally lack and the challenges that we have. And that's really what the call to discipleship is for all of us, but then specifically you're going to have your call and I'm going to have my call to get rid of that thing that I lack and let Jesus supply the possibilities. Okay, so that's kind of what I think of when I read Luke 18. I kind of think of that as like the call to discipleship. Fundamentally, it's about figuring out how to follow Jesus by getting rid of the things that are hindering me and letting him make that possible. Move with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Uh, and Jesus talks about what, what the cost involved with being a disciple is. You might say the cost of discipleship is described in Luke chapter 14. We'll read verses 25 through 33 here. Luke uh, 14, 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All right. So in Luke chapter 18, we had the call to discipleship. Get rid of whatever's hindering you and come and follow me. Well, ultimately, it seems like the young guy rejected that because he realized or was able to deduce or understand what that cost was to him, right? But in Luke chapter 14, Jesus just comes out and talks to us There's a, and tells us there is a big cost to becoming a disciple of Jesus. And he describes it in a couple different ways. I look at verse 26 and 27 again with us. If anyone comes to me and he, he speaks the spiritual truth here first, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, and children, and brothers and sisters... Yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. That's the first part. If Jesus is not the most important relationship that you have in your life, and you're not willing for it to be that way, to grow into that, to allow that possibility, then you can't be a disciple, because ultimately that's where discipleship should take you. Look at the second part. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. First part's talking about relationships, right? If you're not willing to make Jesus the most important and fundamental relationship in your life, you can't be a disciple. The second part is, uh, I think, maybe the emphasis on from verse 26, yes, even his own life. Verse 27 elaborates on it. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me. If you can't even put your life we might say, on the back burner or to the side and make it less important. And even the cross brings up imagery of giving it up, right? You forfeit your life for this life, the one of your master. If you're not even willing to entertain that possibility, let alone do it, then you can't even be a disciple. That's not possible. Um, Now, there's one question I always have with this text, and somebody pointed this out to me, and I found it helpful is what's, what's a good way to understand this hating of all these other things? My own life, my brothers, my mom, and my dad, all these people. And certainly, I think typically the way we explain that is um, Jesus has to be the most important. And so in light of, the, in light of Jesus, it looks like you hate your mother, your father, your brother, your own life. I think that's true, and I think one good way to think about this is if you turn to Genesis 29... Uh, it's the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 29. Um, Genesis 29, we'll read verses 30 and 31. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. 
I just, I think this is just a helpful verse to kind of realize this concept has been around for a long time. Jacob loved Rachel so much, right, that when the Lord looks down at Leah, he just views her as hated, right? And I don't think Scripture tells us that Jacob hated Leah, but his love for Rachel was so much more than for Leah. The Lord could look down and view her as hated, right? She was not loved like Rachel. And so I think it's a similar idea here when we're considering our relationships with other people. They should look like hate, in comparison for the love that I have for Jesus. And so maybe that's a helpful way to think about it. So this is the fundamental call to discipleship. Jesus demands being the most important thing in your life. Um, So look at verse 33. Verse 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And in between what we just talked about and this moment, Jesus uses a couple illustrations. One, of building a tower, and two, of uh, participating in war or battle. In both those instances, it's really, really crucial that you consider the resources needed to continue that thing. Right? Whether it's building a tower, you need to have all your lumber and brick and mortar and all those things lined up and uh, you're able to pay for them. Or you're going to be mocked, right? Or if you go to battle, you need to consider what your resources are, how many people you have and all those sorts of things versus how many people that other person has. Or if you realize you're not going to have the resources, maybe you should go and send a delegation of peace, right? Uh, Verse 33 says that those are really just images for renouncing everything you have. The cost is everything. There is no bartering there is no well i'll give some of it you know sometimes we sing that song that really is focused on you all of what is it all of self none of thee and then it kind of each verse it transitions and then by the end it's none of self all of thee that is the call you know in that song really you're not really a disciple until you're in that last verse right you've committed yourself to the cost. And that's renouncing all of this and all of this. There is no middle ground here. And if you're not willing to to pay that price, to give give up that cost, then you cannot be a disciple. One example I use of this, and I always think this is a funny example to me, just because whatever. So when I was in Auburn for school, I was down there for like one school year, um, I had two roommates. One's name is Nathan, um, and the other is Will. Nathan has did graduate from college, finally. It took him like eight years, no joke, to get his undergrad because he just never got it together. He was just kind of in and out and all over the place and didn't take it serious. So it just took him forever. When I used to tell this story, he was still in school, so it was a little more uncertain then. I don't know. Um, but... He just did whatever. My other roommate, Will, he, he was a little bit older than me. He had to work in things in school a lot, so he was going slower, but he was kind of going through it and doing pretty well. He took it fairly seriously. And then me, it was my first year of school, and I wanted to do well, and I went to classes for the most part and things, but I still didn't take it super seriously because I hadn't gone through it. 
right? It's just inexperience and all that stuff. And so I think we were kind of a good example of this counting the cost thing. Nathan did not count the cost. He took out a bunch of loans and did all this other stuff. And, you know, now that he's graduated, he's glad that he finally made it through, but he's paying the consequences of that, right? He didn't really consider the weight of what he was doing and ended up spending a lot more time and money than really he was willing to. Will, he kind of had it together, sort of, you know, he was kind of in the middle. Or he was probably the most committed of us three, which is sad. But he took it serious and he got good grades and he was moving along just as well as you could have expected him to. Me, on the other hand, I was kind of halfway there, halfway not, right? So I would take it seriously and I would do work if I was around the right people. And then whenever opportunities came to goof off or to sleep in or whatever, I would take them too. And so I hadn't really counted the cost. So I think that's a good example. Will had good grades, as you would imagine. Nathan, when he was in school, had very, very mediocre grades. And I was kind of all over the place as well. And I think that's because, similarly, before I had gone there, I didn't really understand what it was going to take, and I didn't really count the cost of what it was I was embarking in. And I ended up paying for it down the road. That's a silly example, but I think in life we understand that, right? We go to school and we don't take it seriously. We get bad grades and we pay off student loans that didn't actually get us anything, right? Jesus is saying that we can't really do that halfway. That kind of works in life sometimes, but Jesus' proposition is all or nothing. Um, all right, so Luke chapter 14 tells us about what it, what it costs to be a disciple, and that's everything. If you're not willing to give up everything, you cannot be a disciple. Let's move to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And we'll read verses 4 through 11. Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 11. And when he, he being Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled uh, both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So, the first, the first in Luke 18, we kind of looked at the call, what it was, right? How it's personal and how it's general. It needs to lead us to following, but Jesus needs to identify those things that are keeping us from that. The second part, we looked at the cost. Jesus says, you know, when he kind of elaborates on when he points out that thing, it's going to cost. And it's going to take all of renouncing everything to follow. But then this one, I think, is kind of the commitment involved. Um, and I think that overlaps a little bit with the call and the cost, because certainly when you consider the cost, you're considering the commitment. 
Um, but what I mean by commitment is the longevity, the, the, the perseverance of having heard the call and considered the cost and not changing your mind down the road. Um, with that, look at verse 5 again. Verse 5, Simon answered after Jesus had commanded to put the nets back out, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Simon is a commercial fisherman. This is what he does to make a living, and he has partners doing it. So he knows what he's talking about when he's fishing, right? I'm sure, like a lot of people, he grew up in that area, knew it like the back of his hand, knew how things were going and uh, knew when was a good time to fish, when wasn't, where was a good time to fish, where wasn't. Uh, <coughs> Jesus, this guy who's not a fisher, who we have indication that Simon had spent some time around before now. Um, this isn't his first encounter with Jesus. Tells him how to do his job. I don't know how many of us would take kindly to that. I think a lot of us have too much pride in what we do to maybe appreciate this moment. Um, but Simon does something really amazing here. He says... And he acknowledges, we toiled all night, we got nothing, right? That's the time to fish, we got nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Simon does, or Peter does, what Jesus asks him to, despite being inconvenient, right? Uh, it says in the text that they were cleaning their nets. They were done with it inconvenient to take the net that you had just spent time cleaning and throw it back in the water, right? Also, we know that they were tired. He does it not only despite the inconvenience, but that they had been doing it all night. They're probably ready to go to bed, but he does it anyway. And then the last thing is, is that it's a waste of time. We already got nothing for this. So not only is it inconvenient, we're tired, but we know it doesn't work. But... Simon does it anyway. He says, nevertheless, beginning with master, we toiled all night, took nothing but at your word, I will let down the nets. Look at verse 6. And when they had done this, we had, when he had done this inconvenient, exhausting, uh, fruitless seemingly thing, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. You know, once we've considered the call, we've let Jesus identify that thing we're lacking, we're willing to do that, we've counted the cost. Yeah, I'm willing to pay any price to follow Jesus. Then we expect, you know, maybe, like, if you're like me, you expect some grand things to happen, right? Like, oh, I'm committed, it's going to change my life, I'm going to change everybody around me. But what happens when Jesus tells you something that is inconvenient, is exhausting, and seems like a waste of time? Right? Like, I want the big things that are flash in the pan that are sure. Right? That's kind of how I think. I'm not trying to speak for you guys, but like, I want the things that make sense. I want the things that are going to work. I want the things that are not too tiring, you know, right? Like, I think this is the commitment to discipleship. When those things are exhausting, when they don't make sense to me, and they are inconvenient, I'm still willing, like Simon, to say, Nevertheless, at your word, insert whatever. I think that's what it is to be committed. You've counted the cost. You've heard the call. And you're not waffling back and forth. Despite what it seems like to you in that moment. Um, 
I just really appreciate Simon's example now. Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, that is, um, this catch of fish that they had taken in, the boat sinking, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Simon acts on his respect and apparently the authority he sees Jesus having. He says master when he does this, teacher. Um, But it's almost as if he kind of didn't expect it to work, or we're not really sure what he expected, but he's just blown away by the catch that he gets. So much so that the boats are having to get help and things like that. And I think it's in that moment when we still follow through in our discipleship to Jesus when it doesn't make sense and it's tiring and it seems like a waste of time and all that stuff, that Jesus provides this big catch, something that for all intents and purposes shouldn't have happened, right? That really help us realize what we've committed to. Look at what he says. Peter saw it, fell down at his knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man. It's only this moment when in our discipleship we prove ourselves in these trying times that really remind us of why we came in the first place, right? And really show us who Jesus is. It's when Jesus works through us in these inconvenient, exhausting times. It's those moments where we, are, we can be like Simon and we just say, you know, as he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He, this, this had no reason to happen other than Jesus made it happen. Um, and so I think that's encouraging for us. And then look at verse 11. Verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, after catching this big catch of fish, they left everything and followed him. I think that's the commitment there. Um, They listened to Jesus despite all the troubles that that seemed to have with it. They saw what could happen when they did. And in that moment, that reminded them of who they were, right? And then they left everything and followed him when he asked them to. That's, I think, a picture of being committed to your teacher, to being a disciple. Um, So we had the call in Luke 18, the cost in Luke 14, and the commitment in Luke 5 of what it is to be a disciple. So, I mean, obviously I think there's there's some helpful bits in this about discipleship that we learn from, so that's why I would bring this lesson up. But I think a fundamental fundamental thing in the backbone of this lesson is that the discipleship that Jesus calls us to is really a response to grace. Um, And I think that's why I'm talking about this. I think there's a lot of practical things that we get out of this lesson. Just in your heart, you can probably figure out what you need to work on in your discipleship. Um, but being a disciple, hearing the call, counting the cost, and committing is all a response to the grace of discipleship. Uh, I want to end with a couple things here. Just a, It's a kind of a longer quote. Same guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, this is what he said about discipleship and grace. Um, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. 
Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And so I think this lesson reflects that. So for us to respond to Jesus' call of discipleship is really to respond to the grace that he's offering us and telling God that we appreciate that thing and that we aren't going to cheapen it. So if there's anyone here uh, that needs to respond to this in some way, whether that's public or private, let people know. Let us pray for you and things like that. But maybe the time for you to make that known and let us help you would be while Richard leads us in this song.